Good morning. The scripture from today is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 12. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the, Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thank you for reading God's word so wonderfully. Let me make this adjustment here. Set. Good morning, LBC. It's been seven and a half years since we have been in your presence worshiping the Lord uh, with you all. It is so wonderful to see so many of your beautiful and familiar faces. Uh, Cindy reminded me that a lot has changed. Since uh, we've last seen each other, I've lost a lot of hair and gained a lot of children and some gray hairs in places that are shaved right now. But it is such a joy to be here with you all this morning. I think of Paul's words about the Colossians that he thanks God every time he thinks about them in his prayers. And every time we tell the story of Christ United Fellowship, we think fondly of our time here at Lake Baldwin Church. Mike, thank you. Molly, thank you all so much. You all were an incubator of love and development for us. And we so appreciate uh, how critical you were to not only our journeys personally, but to the establishment of a new kingdom outpost in South Downtown Orlando. We love you all and thank you so much. Um, I bring greetings from Christ United Fellowship. And I'm a singing pastor. We, we like to sing at our church too. And so sometimes I stand up and start a, a sermon or start a, a message or the middle of a message with a song. And my heart is filled with gratitude for Lake Baldwin Church. So I just say a song of thanks. I sing a song of thanks. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord, 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 thank the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we love you for your goodness and mercy towards us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its instructions. Thank you for all the promises contained 
therein. We ask now for your help, Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts. We ask that you would remove the block out of deaf ears and turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Oh God, I ask now that you would hide me behind the cross, that much would be made of the name of Jesus Christ. I boast now in my weakness that your power may rest upon me. Anoint me, O oh Lord, now for this, your task. May my words be faithful to your text, and what is not of you, let it fall to the ground. Not to us, O oh Lord, be the glory. Not to us, but to you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, we need rules. I know that people don't like to hear that, especially children. But if we're honest, adults deep down inside probably feel the same way. We don't want anybody telling us what to do with our lives. We want to do our thing our way on our own time and the way in which we want to do it. Uh, I'm not going to ask you to say amen. I'm not going to put us all on the spot like that because I'd be the first one to tell you, hey, that's true of me. I'm a son of Adam as well, okay? Even though I'm a preacher, saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit, we need rules to enjoy just about every area of life. And that's, if you, if you like sports, you know that you need rules. I played football in college, and a friend and I were just having some fun the other day talking about uh, how, how we need boundaries, how God gives us boundaries in order for us to survive in life. And the illustration of uh, a boundaryless or ruleless football game uh, came to uh, the forefront of the conversation. He said, can you imagine if there were no rules, if there were no regulations in a football game? I, uh, my mind went a lot of places because I, I can proffer a few things that would result without rules and regulations. Uh, we, we can thank the Florida State Seminoles probably for the increased uh, rules that protect quarterbacks. It was Mickey Andrew who famously didn't mind taking two late hits per game. I think he probably stressed the rule a little bit. He didn't mind if his players took two and a half steps. I think if you take more than two steps now and you hit a quarterback, you probably will get ejected from a game. Uh, it might, you might experience the sensation of knocking someone out, but then you'll be knocked out the game as well and someone else could get hurt. And that's no enjoyment for anybody, so we need rules in life. You, you understand the need for rules when you get together as a family and someone pulls out the board game or somebody says, let's play uh, chess, let's play checkers, let's play spades. And then when the game is going on, or uno, as we like to play in my house, an oldie but goodie, and then all of a sudden you hear someone say they scored and you're wondering how that's the case. To which they respond, oh, that's how we play. <laughs> and then you turn around and you do the same thing and they say, well, that's not the rules. <laughs> you see, we, we all need rules in order to enjoy life and to enjoy things appropriately. And it's no less true as the people of God. The Lord gives us rules for enjoying covenant relationship with him. Sometimes we take the mindset that rules are, God is a cosmic killjoy and he is out to get us, out to destroy our happiness. But in all actuality, God gives us rules and instructions so that we might flourish in relationship with him. And so that brings us to our text this morning where we see we all have the proclivity to want to engage in a life of self-autonomy, all right, self-rule-making that ends up finding ourselves, that ends up leading us back into bondage. And so the Lord gives us words that lead us 
into more freedom as people who have already been freed by him. And so we turn our attention to uh, several of the commandments that we will engage this morning. We'll be looking at verses uh, 4 through 12, which have been read into your hearing already. Uh, Jim Cunningham uh, took care of the prologue to the Ten Commandments. Grace precedes law. God delivered his people and said, you live like this as a result of free people. And then he proceeded to the first commandment. You ought to have no other gods before me. So whatever Jim said, listen to it. A, because he's smart. And B, because he looks just as good, or I think even better than Charlton Heston. Amen? <laughs> Jim, I love you. You know I do. And so this morning, I'll be, we'll be considering the remainder of God's instructions in the first table of the law, how do we live uh, as God's free people in relationship to him. And then we'll look at the first commandment that commences the second table of the law, how we live in relationship to other people as God's free people. So the context here is Israel receiving instructions after getting delivered from the tyrannical uh, system of Egypt under the hands of Pharaoh the Lord delivered them with an outstretched arm and now Moses says uh, here is the way that you ought to live in light of being free from this system of tyranny and this system of oppression and so in one sense the two tables of the law okay love God love neighbor is a summation of the entire law you get to Matthew chapter 22 Jesus says it succinctly love God Love neighbor. Against these things, there's no law. There's no law against love. Okay, so this is God's instructions on love to his people. I appreciate Ray Ortland's approach to the uh, Ten Commandments. I'll, I'll adopt a little bit of that for our framework. He says each point gives us four things. It's God's character, revelation of God's character, confrontation of our sin, and in instructions on how to live and then there's a promise contained in these commandments. So I'll toy around with that uh, framework as we consider our verses this morning. Look with me at the second commandment. You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting iniquity on the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. So the first thing we, we see here is that God says to make nothing, nothing in heaven that is in the the sky above or anything on the earth to the far reaches of the universe, nothing, make nothing that is in the form of me. Nothing. What does this tell us about God? This tells us that God is unique. He's more unique than that. There aren't words to describe God's uniqueness. God is invisible. When he spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai, there was a glorious display of his creative power taking place on top of the mountain. Fire, lightning. It was a cosmic conversation taking place. And Israel heard the voice 
of God. They didn't see any form. They were to take heed of God's words. And Moses would go on to reiterate that again in Deuteronomy as he's expounding the Ten Commandments. So God is in a unique category. He is invisible. We're not to fashion anything that's representative of God. Okay? Theologian Patrick D. Miller said, anytime we create an idol, we are disrupt tampering with God's transcendence and God's eminence. We're either attempting to make God way beyond being known, or we're trying to localize God as though we can contain him. That's the danger of idolatry. What else do we see here about God? Israel, while they were under Egyptian captivity, was subject to Egypt's gods. They had multiple gods that were represented by different creatures of God's creation. And God says that I am not like any of these things. Pharaoh was deified, the leader of their empire. God said, I'm not like any of these things. I'm the creator. Everything else is the creature. So I will have none of it. In fact, he shows them as he systematically takes down every last one of their gods that there is no God like him in all the universe. So God says, don't fashion anything like that in the, he in the heavens. Don't fashion anything on the earth that is a representative of me. And don't worship anything that is created next to me. So not only does God say, do not create anything that represents me, but God says, do not create anything in juxtaposition to me. So you are to have no little g gods either. Uh, Moses said to the Lord, let me see your glory. The Lord said, Moses, I I'll let it pass by you, for no man can see my face and live. No man can see my face and live. We see God, we behold God with a different set of eyes. It's rooted in the motivation clause that God is jealous. That is, he is zealous. He has a high, holy, sanctified zeal for the affection of his people. God would not share his glory with anybody else. He says, I'm God and I'm God alone. There's no one beside me. So his zeal for his people is a sanctified zeal that, translate in, that translates into right living for his people. This is, also, this is dangerous, but it's good news. All of us should be excited about God being jealous for his people. I think when I'm playing with my kids, how they'll call me and they'll, they'll grab my attention. They'll try to distract me from what I'm doing so that I will direct my attention to them. We don't have to ask God to tune his attention to us. He's, he's already paying attention to us. Even when we're running from God, God is coming after us. He is zealous for us. So that is good to know that the one who created us has a certain interest in us, an unrelenting interest in us. That's good news as God's covenant people. He is zealous for our affections. He's zealous for our attention. He's zealous for relationship with us. This is the, this, it's, it's imagery that's related to a husband and a wife. What reasonable spouse, what reasonable wife wouldn't want her husband to be zealous for her? We as the bride of Christ have a God who is zealous for us. What husband, what husband, reasonable husband, 
wouldn't be zealous for his wife. You see, God is zealous for us because there's a covenantal bond at work, a one where he desires relationship with us, a living, active relationship with us. God also is rooted in his character being just and merciful. God says, I will not clear the guilty. What does he mean here? Does this mean that every single jot and tittle, every single, every single sin that I commit, I can expect that my children will be punished for my wrongdoing? No, that's not the case. But we ought to understand that as covenantal people, there are social, familial, societal consequences for sin. You, as a member of the covenant with covenant children, have an impact on your descendants who are alive. A grandfather has an impact on his children and on his grandchildren. A grandmother has an impact on her children and her grandchildren while they're living. So we have to understand that our sin is never just something that's done in isolation. Even when we sin in isolation, it has a tendency to impact those that we love around us. Okay, so there are corporate implications to our sins. However, Notice how much greater God's mercy is. All right, that's God's justice, his judgment for those who hate him. But notice how far, how deep, how advanced, how to the far reaches, how many generations down the line, God's mercy goes to those who serve him. Saints, he's a merciful God. We must see that in the text here that God has a deep incl inclination towards mercy for those who love him. In fact, when you read the Psalms, David says, Lord, if you counted all my sins against me, who could stand? Thank you, O God, that you don't count my sins against me. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not account, count his iniquity. Saints, look how beautiful, look how marvelous, how, look how gracious and far-reaching the mercy of the Lord is. He even revealed himself to Moses as the God who is slow to anger, merciful and abounding, and steadfast love. We go on here. We see that as we move through the Old Testament, we see that there are a litany of examples as to how God's people, shortly after receiving these instructions, are already making a mess of the place. We know the famous golden calf. They're mad at Moses. He's taking forever. Aaron, we need you to do something about this. So he fashions, here, here, here is your God, a golden calf. Just after being, seeing God's power on display, seeing his mercy delivering them, and here they are already living out the bad tendencies of Egypt. What is this? Uh, the green who says, so you want to go back to Egypt. And so we see here in the text as we move through God's uh, acts of redemptive history, we see our proclivity to idolatry. We see our proclivity to violating these instructions that God gives for our well-being. Paul, as we get to New Testament, Paul says that we've exchanged the, the, the creator for the creature. We take the things that God gives us in creation for enjoyment, and we worship them instead of giving praise, honor, and glory to God for the good gifts that he gives us. Our hearts are inclined to these things. They're inclined to idolatry. Uh, you might say, well, I don't have any statues in front of my house where I'm offering uh, any sacrifices or where I'm offering any food or anything like that, but I will say to you, it's very, very, very subtle. We can make idols of political interests. 
We can make idols of social, social ideologies. We can make idols of our jobs, of our reputations, of our standing in society. You may not have a shrine in front of your house, but sometimes it seems that every four years in our country, we, we get a full measure of our hearts, even in the church. I think the last four years has taught us that clearly, that we got some idols that the Lord has exposed deeply with how much interest, how much affection, how much devotion we place to certain political interests and candidates. You see, you may not have a statue in front of your house, but there are many statues in our hearts that need to be destroyed as they'll witness. Okay, Lord have mercy on us. Look at the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. God's name is sacred. Names are important. They're, they're, they are attached to the person, the presence, the power of God. I had a dear friend, Lucy, and I did as we were going through a transition. We had a conversation with her one, one morning, and she said, listen, I want you to use my name however you can that will benefit you all in this time of transition. And we did and it was beneficial. What's so important about a name? When we invoke someone's name, we call them to witness a situation. We call them to witness or to attest something about our character or to attest something about our qualification for a matter. And when we call upon the name of the Lord, we must understand that we are calling God to be present, to be a witness, and to attest something about the situation. And so this commandment here is getting us to open our eyes to see the significance of how we use God's name. God's name is sacred. Moses said, who should I tell you? He said, tell him I am who I am. What a, an interesting thing God tells Moses. Basically, in short, there's a whole sermon on that. It's related to God's, what we call in theological terms, aseity. God has no counselors. God has no need of anything. God is the creator of everything that exists except himself. There are no needs that are on God's plate. He's God and he's God all by himself. We see a burning bush, something that dissolves but that cannot be extinguished. God is eternal, he's infinite, he's unchangeable, he's all those wonderful things and those realities are bound up in the name of God of God. And so when we think about God's name, we must think about God's attributes. We must think about his power. We must think about his presence. We must think about his holiness. In fact, when he entered in the covenant with Abraham, he swore by himself. Who else can he swear by? There's no one greater than him. Abraham, if I don't do these things, death be to me. Genesis 15. God's name is bound up in his promises, it's bound up in his commitment. So when we swear by God's name, we are invoking the king of creation to come and give an account about the situation. And this, in the life of Israel, got them in a lot of trouble. You go to Zechariah chapter 5, you go to Jeremiah chapter 5, they said, you swear by God's name, but you swear falsely. So what they were doing is using God's name to get off the hook. Yes, we swear by your name, O Lord, but... We didn't do anything when all along they're guilty of all sorts of heinous crimes and acts. And what's worse, they did, they were committing crimes against their own kinsmen. 
First Kings chapter 21, Naboth's vineyard. Ahab, the wicked king, says, I want your vineyard. Naboth said, this is my inheritance from my father. Jezebel says, aren't you the king? And so she manufactures a conspiracy and she, she sends a, a notice out in the land that Naboth is a wicked man and they get two evil witnesses to come and attest that his character is bad. And it ends up in calamity for this man. When we call upon the name of the Lord to give a false account about a matter, that is wicked. That is evil. And this is what was taking place in the life of Israel. Maybe it's not as overt in your life as that, but when we use God's name flippantly, when we use God's name, God's name loosely, we are guilty of profaning his name, taking lightly his name. How ought we to use God's name? We did it this morning. Mark did a beautiful job. We use God's name rightly with praise. The psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. I will bless the Lord at all times. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We use God's name for praise. We use it to pronounce blessing. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. We use it to pronounce praise. We use it to pronounce blessing. We use it when we're making promises. Oh, a beautiful example of that is with David and Jonathan. That covenant that they made before God, that friendship rippled throughout the generations so much so that Jonathan's descendant, Mephibosheth, has a seat at the king's table. When we call, God's, call upon God's name to witness something, we are saying, binding ourselves to keeping a promise before the living and true God. God's name is to be proclaimed in all the earth. We get to the New Testament, Jesus says, go ye therefore to all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. God's name, there's so many more things to say about God's name. Jesus tells us that we ought to hallow the name of our heavenly Father when we're praying. Paul tells us in Philippians that he says here, speaking of Jesus's humiliation and exaltation, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9 Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. This commandment extends even into the new covenant with how we deal with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His name is to be hallowed. We see here the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath. This is the moment where I get to tell you I'll take a nap. Wake up. Mike told me I had an hour today. <laughs> hang in there, hang in there. This is a gift from God. There's not a person in here who would refuse a free vacation to the JW Marriott. Amen? That's a good place to rest. 
Everybody needs rest, okay? Beautiful scenery, good food, all that. So it is with the Sabbath. The Lord gives us a rhythm of J.W. Marriott's in our life. He gives us the Ritz-Carlton once a week. We just don't take it. We just adapt the mentality like Israel. We, we love to punish ourselves at work. The Lord gives us a gift in the Sabbath. The Sabbath, God saying, sit down somewhere and stop working. It's not God trying to steal something from you. God is trying to say that I am your ultimate provider. All things come from me. You don't have to burden yourself to death with work. You can actually rest. Here in Exodus, Moses roots it in creation. God worked six days and he rested. God is gracious to his entire creation. We are wired for rest. Whether you love Jesus or not, you're wired for rest. And God has set aside a day. That's the patterns and rhythms of life. There are seasons. Even the farm ground has to lay fallow occasionally. So God gives us rest. You go over to Deuteronomy. Moses, Moses says, observe this day. He roots it in redemption. On the Sabbath, we ought to think about work from rest, and we ought to worship God for the salvation that we have in his son Jesus. There are two things at play on the Sabbath. Sabbath is a gift to man, seized from our economic interests. Now, I know there's grace, all right? There's deeds of mercy. There's jobs that cannot be stopped, okay, that, that tend to life. There are situations where people are, are in, in less free, uh, uh, where people's uh, uh, economic vocations demand more work just for basic survival. God is merciful. But on the whole, the Sabbath is a day where God gives us as a gift to rest from our labors and to think about the redemption that we have in his son, Jesus Christ. Let me say this. I have no problem with working hard and playing hard. But if we, our work is coming at the expense of faithful rest, and our playing is a result of numbing ourselves because we're not resting faithfully, there's, a, there's some refining that needs to happen in our lives. And God gives us the gift of the Sabbath in order to enjoy these things. The wise, the wise farmer is good to the beast of his field. It goes all the way down. You may want to consider, as a person who employs people, how might this be realized in your life? to give rest to your employees. Not only rest for yourself, but rest to your employees. Patrick uh, D. Miller, again commenting on this, says the Sabbath helps to guard against one of the primary idolatries to which many, if not all, are prone, idolizing your work by making it the center of value and meaning for our lives. The Sabbath uh, relativizes human work and makes it possible regularly to set aside our goals and plans our ambitions and accomplishments, to think and care about the God who created us and God's work about God's plan and our place in it. Saints, hear me loud and clear, rest. Rest. Stop killing yourselves at work. The Lord says it's okay. Because one step from that is working to earn God's favor. And the Lord says, I've given you my favor already. It's okay, you can rest. I will take care of you. 
I will provide for you. I'm a covenant-keeping God. We see here our last commandment. The fifth commandment tells us, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. This commandment tells us something about God's design for respecting authority. In general, respecting our biological parents or adoptive parents specifically, but this principle, I believe, extends out to general authority um, in, in line with Luther and Calvin on this matter and some other great men who are way smarter than me. And so we know that God created us God is the authoritative figure, if you will, of the entire universe. He's the creator. We are the creatures. There's a great distinction. And as such, he has the right to receive our affection, right to receive our worship, right to receive our devotion. And we see in the garden early on with our first parents that we have a problem with authority. God says, do this and you'll live. They want to be their own law to themselves. We see this struggle is, the struggle is real. It's no less true for us today. Now, I want to say that dishonor is not simply just talking back to your parents. Dishonor is not the, the big guns that we think about, slamming the door in your parents' face, all right, talking back, mouthing off to them, all that kind of stuff. It, it extends to, to more than that, you see. Um, it extends to how you honor your parents in old age. How do you care for your parents in their time of need? How do you care for your parents when they are in a vulnerable situation? And understand that family life is complex. We have stories, the stories are real, and there are things that happen in the lives of relationships between parent and child that make this a very complex commandment to live out. I understand that, okay? But nonetheless, the Lord says as a free person, he has give, he's equipped us with what is needed to carry this commandment out. I'm talking specifically with regard to family situations where there may be high levels of tension and complexity. I want to encourage you this morning, don't just, if you have tension with your parents, don't just write them off. Pray and agonize, with, wrestle with this and say, Lord, how can I actually live this out in the context of a very difficult situation? Ask the Lord to grant you the grace that is needed to, to honor this amidst complex relationships. I said this extends to society in general. This, this, we have so many issues with authority. 2020 has taught us our issues with authority from all the way from the commander in chief to the common man on the corner to the Capitol on January 6th. We've got issues with authority. The Bible says that no authority has been placed in position over us without God's sovereign administration. Romans 13. Any authority that's in place, good, bad, ugly, Daniel saw the rise and fall of several kingdoms, is superintended by an all-wise, all-powerful God, ever-present God. And so we ought to think about our relationship to authority in light of the supreme authority that's the one who rules the universe, our covenant God. Moses says that this, there's a promise with this. God's favor is turned towards you. Your days are long. There's reciprocal benefit to this. When you teach your children how to honor your parents, you teach, when you're honoring your parents, you teach your children how to honor you in your time of vulnerability. 
When you teach your children the right relationship to authority, they in turn go out into society and they live with the right relationship to authority. All these things are bound up in this command. But can I tell you this morning that these commands are good for enjoying God, but only if we see them in light of what Christ has done. These commandments are good only if we see them in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is, he has perfectly kept every last one of these commandments. So I don't want you to adopt a mentality that keeping these commandments is what's going to garner you favor with God because you can't do it perfectly. None of us can. We fail the test already in that over and over again. But we have been freed like the Israelites. Just as they were delivered from the oppressive, tyrannical hand of Egypt, the Lord delivered us from the tyranny of our sin and set us free to joyful obedience. And don't we see this in Christ? Christ perfectly worshiped God in spirit and in truth. In him we behold the face of God by faith. And Paul said that he is the image of the invisible God. And one day our faith will give way to sight. And we have the promise of seeing Jesus' faith. John tells us in his epistle. We will behold his face and we will be changed. We will be like him. And so now, saints, we don't need to stare at an image. We look at Jesus through the eyes of faith. And our faith will give way to sight one day. Christ perfectly honored the name of God. In fact, the Lord's Prayer, he said, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He honored the name of God perfectly. Jesus tells us that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and that it was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He invites us to come unto him and receive rest. The Hebrew writer says that we have entered into rest already. And by faith, saints, listen, we put down the cell phones. By faith, we turn off the notifications. By faith, we wait until Monday to check our emails and not when our children need our time. By faith, we tell work, you stay where you are. My work is to rest right now. The resurrection of Jesus establishes Sunday as the day on which we rest, the Lord's day, the first day of the week, the day where we rest from our economic interest, the day where we worship the Lord, where we actually come to church so that we can get rest, not rest from coming to find our ultimate rest. Listen, I had a friend that said, oh, Sunday mornings we would get up, go to the golf course. I said, I don't have a problem with you going to the golf course. Come to worship and then take me to the golf course with you. Come to church and then take me and my six kids with you, my, 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 my family of five, to the beach with you. I promise you I have no problem as a pastor telling you it's okay to have a good time on the Sabbath. It's okay to recreate, to enjoy God's creation. No problem whatsoever. But don't skip out on the best rest here in the gathering of God's people where you hear the preach word where you see the administration and experience the administration of the sacraments, you won't find a greater rest. Jesus honored his earthly parents perfectly. The father said that Jesus was his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. Jesus says that his food is to do the will of the one who sent him. And on the cross as he was dying for the sins of the world. He says, woman, behold your son. He says to his disciple, behold your mother. Paul tells us to honor the man, the older man in the congregation. Don't rebuke them. 
Paul says to care for the widow who has need. The church is called to honor its other family members as well. And if we are in Christ, John says in Revelation, we will inherit the eternal promised land where sin will be fully and finally destroyed. And these rules will be enjoyed in full measure in the presence of God forever. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we love you and ask that you would seal these words to our hearts so that we would serve you with joyful obedience. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.